Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. If it's your first time, welcome. If you've been here with us uh, since the beginning or joined us at some point, welcome back. Uh, so excited to share this special episode with you. This is a second of a 10-part series that we are partnering with Stand With Asian Americans as we explore a variety of ways for our community to stand up and to um, advocate for ourselves. And and this one is a special, unique one. Uh, it's a dear friend of mine, and uh, she is having a week. Uh, last Tuesday, she released her first book, Permission to Come Home. It is a bestseller. Uh, she has done sold-out events in New York and in Houston. Many of you know her as At Asians for Mental Health. She is our friend, Dr. Jenny Tsu Mei Wang, a psychologist, a speaker, now best-selling author. Um, Really excited to share our conversation as we talk about her journey into finding her own voice and talking about uh, mental health, uh, but from an Asian American perspective, how she found her calling in, in sharing her ideas with the Instagram account and uh, the process of her uh, writing a book and um, doing so much work for us. I know I don't speak just for myself, but for so many of you who are so grateful for the content that Jenny has created for us and uh Finding community uh, through the uh, the mental health uh, mental health uh, professional resource that she has created, and so uh, really excited to share this with you. If you have not yet, please go get the book "Permission to Come Home." Um, it is an amazing book. It is a uh, very important book, but more important, most importantly, perhaps, it is a necessary book for us to uh, be able to express a lot of the things that we have felt for perhaps our entire lives with language that. Um, she is teaching us how to use and just ultimately making us feel that it is okay to talk about these things. And so without further ado, I introduce to you uh, my conversation with Jenny Wang. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans, whether it is your first time or your 100, and I think this will be 143, 144. Welcome back. You are listening to this in May, which most of us know as Asian Pacific American Heritage Month here in the States. Our Canadian friends know it as Asian Heritage Month. Um, wherever you are, that's what we celebrate. Uh, the federal government told us to celebrate ourselves in May, so we're doing that. It is also Mental Health Awareness Month, which we don't talk about often enough. But today, my friend Jenny is going to talk to us about both of those things and at the intersection of those things and why uh, we didn't really talk about that growing up and why we want to normalize it so that when all of our kids grow up, they're going to look at us and say, why do you guys make such a big deal out of this stuff? It's just normal. Um, a lot of what we do, I hope that's the reaction from our kids. And so we'll talk about one of those super cool things that is in motion, which will uh, have happened by the time you listen to our voice, which is that Jenny is going to be an author. She is an author. Um, Permission to Come Home is available wherever you buy bookstores, preferably not Amazon, but if you must, please do, because uh, those rankings are important as well. But anyway, I am so excited to talk to Jenny today about all of these things. Maybe it'll be a therapy session for me. I don't know, <laughs> but let's get into it. Jenny, welcome to the Asian Americans. Thank you so much, Jerry, for sharing space and allowing me to come on and chat. I am so excited. Um, you know, I, I think through the pandemic, um, in the beginning stage of the pandemic, people flocked to your account because we found a place where we could share uh, through comments and just express ourselves about a whole bunch of stuff that 
either we always wanted to and never had a place to properly talk about, or I think which is the bigger uh, case, we didn't even know some of these things that we bottled up inside or things that we um, had not given ourselves permission to talk about. And so um, that's how I discovered you. Uh, I saw people sharing your squares and I was like, oh my God, this person is awesome. Um, and really, I think I said to myself about two years ago, it'd be very cool to have her on the show one day. And so um, two years later, here we are. Uh, big shout out to Charles Kim, our mutual <laughs> friend and our mutual uh, literary agent uh, for making the connection. And, you know, just really also shout out to him for uh, leveraging his position in the world to amplify our story. Because, um, I mean, did you ever think that you'd write a book one day? No, right? That's not something we do. That's not something, right, that was in our framework of what was possible. So, yeah. But, but even through like, graduate school, you know, and then getting your PhD, like, or I guess this particular book, right? Like a book about us and our experiences. Like, when did that become a real idea for you um, prior to actually writing the book? I would say that it was probably in 2020 that I thought to myself, you know, there are things that end up getting discussed on Instagram or these siloed platforms that never reach people who are not on social media. And I think that's when it was this thought, like, I could write a book, <laughs> but I don't know that it really materialized into something achievable until Charles actually reached out. He actually DM'd me and said, hey, do you want to write a book? And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, is that even possible? Right? Is that something that we do? And I think as a professional, sure, you end up in edited books, you end up in academic books. But I don't know that I ever envisioned myself writing a book for people, for individuals in the general public. And yet I felt like I was writing all the time, right? Every one of my squares has these super long captions, which I'm sure drive some people crazy. And yet I was writing almost, it felt like pages upon pages every few days. And so I think that's when I was like, you know what? I think I could do this. And I think I want to, because I think our community is in a revolution, a renaissance. I don't know what you want to call it. Something's changing. And if people are to truly change, our mental health is the core. It forms the foundation for that. And so I think that's when I was like, let's do it. And you are a hero to many. You are a place of solace for many, uh, including myself um, and including so many of our friends who look to you. And I would also love to talk about sort of at some point uh, your impact, the impact it's had on, on on your mental health and sort of with with great platform. And, and now we're, you know, talking north of 80,000 on Instagram. And uh, there are people who probably love you for what you do, but always want more. There are people who probably troll you and make life difficult because internet assholes exist. And I, I love to talk about that, but sort of how this all came about, I think is really fascinating because we sort of look to you now as like, well, of course we should talk about mental health and people get frustrated when there aren't enough Asian American and, and whatever intersectionality that exists for you, uh, therapists and mental health professionals to help us vent and to speak uh, because there are so many instances that we hear of, look, I spent my entire time explaining to old white lady 
what I was feeling so that by the time I was done, I didn't get actually a chance to tell her anything. And, and so all you're doing is amazing. But I want to roll the time clock back. So we know you today as author, uh, psychologist, uh, speaker, mom, superstar, friend, everything. To get a better understanding of when you decided to take the path of um, higher education, particularly in the field of mental health, um, I think it would help the audience understand sort of the Wong family origin story of how y'all immigrated to America, under what circumstances, and, and tell us a little bit about the early ages of Jenny. Sure. So I we moved to the United States when I was two from Taiwan, and my parents came as the only siblings to really leave Taiwan. So we essentially came here by ourselves, and it was for a job. You know, my dad was an engineer, and his Taiwanese engineering company had plants in the United States, and he was kind of brought out here to kind of start building out these um, petroleum plants. And so we came out here with very little ties to really anyone. You know, we had some of his business uh, work colleagues, but that was the extent of it. And, you know, throughout my childhood, there were always these kind of like things that I would observe about our family or our culture. And I absolutely went through that whole phase where I was like, I'm going to be as least Asian as possible because I grew up in a predominantly white, you know, Italian Jewish neighborhood in New Jersey. And when I graduated, I think there were maybe 10 Asian Americans in my graduating class of 300. And so I did the whole, you know, uh, I'm going to try to assimilate because that was the only strategy that I knew. And I'm going to do everything that I can to appear as least Asian as possible. And at the same time, I felt like I was living a double life because I would go to Chinese school on Saturdays and I would speak Chinese at home and I would be immersed in different parts of my culture in spaces that were not school. So there's always this sense of living in the margins. And that was a very strange phenomenon for me, but I kind of accepted it like every other Asian American I knew growing up. And then I went to UT Austin for college. and. I was like, holy cow, where are all these Asians? And they all like stick together. They all congregate, right? And so I went into a space where now there were all these Asian Americans who are much more kind of integrated in their identity and they're proud of who they are. And it was a really kind of strange awakening for me. And at the same time, nobody was talking about Asian American identity then either. Right. And I'm pretty old. So I went to college a long time ago. Don't, don't, don't say that. We're the same age. <laughs> or we're, we're mature. We're, we're mature. <laughs> we, we've aged well. <laughs> so, you know, even then there was a sense of, oh, well, we know we're Asian, but we're not going to talk about that. Right. We're not going to talk about those facets of ourselves because in many ways, I feel like we've been complicit in our own kind of assimilation, our own kind of, what do you want to call it, whitewashing of our identity. And so I think that that piece always lingered. And I went to college to become an accountant, left, ending up going to graduate school in psychology, much to my parents' kind of surprise. And so there was a transition within there where I felt like and my parents are paying for college. And my one job was to finish college and get a job so I could help support them one day. 
Instead, I'm taking on student loans. I'm going to be in school for four to five more years. And I'm going to pursue an area that I don't know anyone who's Asian and gets an actual job doing this. And so I think that evolution, in a way, transformed all of the barriers that I saw for myself. Because for the first time, it was like, no, this is what I want. And it wasn't something that everybody else expected of me. I want to ask you about the assimilation uh, idea or phenomenon that we all experienced. And um, I, I alluded that this might be a therapy session for me, so I'm taking full advantage of it. Um, I think a lot of it was self-induced, right? Because I think it was what our parents told us to, to survive because their primary self-identity was a foreigner, right? They expected racism. They didn't see this as their country. Many of them still don't because they are Taiwanese, Korean, whatever, happen to be living in America. And in one generation, even though you and I were both not born here, we now have the audacity to say, F you, treat me the same. Right. And I don't think they expect to be treated the same still today. I think they are okay that there is a invisible hierarchy of Americans and we fall somewhere between not the top, but not the bottom. And we're okay with that. And there's a lot of uh, history there and sort of unlearning that they never had a chance to do or wanted to do uh, the way that we saw white and black people from the lens of uh, being raised in Asia, at least our parents did. Is something that we find hard to understand today. But how much of that was necessary? And, and did we have a chance, do you think, as a collective generation uh, to try to attempt America not through that lens of being authentically ourselves? Because now I think we look at it and go, duh, be yourself, right? Go. But it's like, yo, like we had to assimilate because like that was a defense mechanism. Um, like, was that the was that the the least painful option to immigrant stories? I do believe that at the different waves of immigration in the United States, having and living in an Asian body was a perilous act, actually, right? So you think about Vincent Chin. I mean, he was just out celebrating his bachelor party, right? And he was murdered. Or, you know, the different lynchings that happened to Asian Americans in different periods of time. So this idea that like, oh, we're the model minority, that is a relatively newer concept, right? And it's both and. We are simultaneously the model minority and simultaneously the perpetual corner. And we saw that play out, right, with COVID. And so when you think about the mind when it's under threat or trauma, what does it do first? It says, what is the fastest and safest path to safety? Well, we can't hide the fact that we're Asian, right? That is very apparent from the very front, front and center kind of interactions that we have. So what other paths do we have? We can fight, we can run or flee, we can freeze, or we can feign, which is a lesser known trauma response. Feigning is this idea that you comply. You defer. You might even befriend your attacker or aggressor in order to not be subjected to future attack. And I truly believe that there are elements of the way that our community showed up was born out of that defense mechanism that we talked about. And so in order to ward off attack, in order to get the job, in order to be accepted in your neighborhood, right, 
you allow yourself to comply or even please in order to give a sense of, hey, I'm not a threat. I'm not as foreign as you might think. I'm not other in the way that you imagine. And I wonder how much of that um, has changed, right? Because for me and you, we came here 30 plus years ago. We are, our place of birth is back home, but we are largely American from experience, academic, and, you know, all things, um, oh, you know, or at least we have the ability to go back and forth. But immigration, particularly within the Asian community, still exists, fresh immigration. Um, even though we feel like we've evolved, I often wonder if our perception of the evolution of the Asian American identity is veiled by our own personal participation in it. And if it's any better, actually, for somebody jumping off a plane today, because um, the self-identity is still there. Like a, a fresh kid from Korea doesn't come here and go, I'm going to be American because it's safer to be so. And screw assimilation. They're still naming themselves Jenny and Jerry, even though we weren't born that, right? To hedge against racism. Um, and if the projections are true of migration patterns, even though thanks to a certain president that stopped for a little bit, like people still want to come here. And, and so will we ever uh, get out of this cyclical, fresh immigrant mindset, or are we always going to do this to ourselves? Because um, that's, you know, we're still going to have to coexist within our own communities, balancing, I mean, my kid and your kids or my ki our kids will be, you know, second generation, however we, we count it. Um, their friends might be fresh immigrants, but they're still going to check the same box. They're going to be treated the same way by other kids. And so I, I wonder about that. And I wonder if, you know, um, if uh, what we are experiencing is just a, a reckoning of our own experiences, or is it actually objectively better to exist in this country as an Asian American, particularly in light of, um, you know, the attacks that we have to witness and that we have to talk about? Um, yeah, what I mean, do you do you think that we are objectively in a safer place to exist as Asian Americans, or do we just feel that way because we have the privilege of access, education, living in certain neighborhoods, and we can shield ourselves, at least socioeconomically, from the most vulnerable uh, locations or spaces in our community? I think that's such a great question. And I think you're almost alluding to like a cohort effect, right? Like our parents' cohorts have a really different context. And even you and I, we're sitting here and don't have what is typically thought of as an Asian accent, even as we're speaking English. That is already a privilege in the sense that we are viewed differently simply because of that. And so even that difference will incur different experiences from people's worlds. And so on the one hand, I think there is the self-labeling or the self kind of like, this is, this is my identity that we are internalizing. And then there's also the structural, right? And I think those things run concurrently for us. And so I think that for immigrants who are just coming in the last year or two and they're coming, you know, you can tell, like when I go back to Taiwan, they're like, you're American. I can see it immediately, right? And immigrants who are coming to the United States, even now, we can often see that in the way they choose to dress, in the way they speak in the way that they wear their hair, who knows, right? So 
I don't necessarily think the United States is, let's say, a more safe space for immigrants. I do think the solidarity and the strength of voice has changed. Mm. And with our parents' generation, there wasn't a voice, right? There weren't people in news. There were not people in media. There were not people, right, in politics who looked like us and spoke for us. But I think that's changing. And that is what I rest my hope on. Not in the fact that racism is necessarily in decline, but in the fact that the people who are feeling marginalized are saying not anymore. And we're hopefully going to embrace all of people who have similar identities and say we're fighting together for all of us. Thanks for that. Because I, 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 you know, it's, I think otherwise uh, is, is, Feels so defeatist, especially in uh, thinking about how much we've come, you know, as a group. When you went into psychology and then decided to go get your doctorate and then to do a postdoc fellowship at Duke, was the intent to be a psychologist specializing in our experiences and therefore being an Asian American psychologist? Or when did that come into fray? Because I think. As all of us, we can't change the way we look. We certainly can't change our lived experiences. And so we I struggle with wanting to be the best speaker, the best interviewer, the best whatever we are. But I can't make that declaration without having to admit that a lot of my perspective is because I'm Asian American, because I am Korean. And so it's hard to want to be pigeonholed as just a Korean American anything. So for you, particularly because it is a topic that wasn't commonplace when you and I were growing up, it still isn't, um, you know, your book, Permission to Come Home, is uh, probably one of the first actual books that is written for us, by us, on a topic that we don't often talk about. And so it all seems revolutionary, right? The people who are following your Instagram account, Agents for Mental Health, are relieved and just sort of coming with this breath of fresh air, like, holy crap. I didn't know I needed this. How much of that did you go into psychology as a academic discipline with? And what are your viewpoints on it now in terms of how much of your uh, actual practice work, your actual professional work involves the identity? I went into psychology because I just loved it in the sense of it was a field of study that just blew my mind, honestly. It was something that was so outside of the box, tapped into so many elements, right? The humanities, history, anthropology, psychology, neuroscience. So my initial entry point was not necessarily driven by my identity, but I will say that I had a white male, very well-known and famous professor who was a mentor and wrote the letter for one of my recommendation letters for graduate school. And he looked at me and he, he said, you're not getting into any PhD programs because you're a non-traditional student. I mean, you've been a business student, like you're graduating with a finance degree. You're not getting in. And I look back now at that moment and I think to myself, would he have ever said that to a white male graduate student or a white graduate student? Right? And that experience lit a fire under me because I was pissed. And I was just like, that's it. I'm only going for doctorates. 
I'm going to show you that this is possible. And I think that really reinforced this idea that, you know what, like you said, the pigeonholing. You don't belong here. What are you doing here to come into a field filled with white men, right? And that then continued on where I went into training program after training program. And I only have one Asian American professor in all of my mentorship and training experiences. And she was this fiery Cantonese woman. And I write about her in the book because she was so transformative in what I saw was possible for myself. And so when I finally went into private practice, I didn't start off marketing myself just to Asian American clientele. I was like, hey, I need to like feed my family. I need to see all kinds of clients, right? But I noticed that more and more people started to reach out who are women of color, who are individuals of color, who are Asian American. And that was when I said, you know what, there's something really powerful. This idea that I don't have to explain what saving face means because I, I feel as though you understand what that is because you felt it, right? And I don't need to explain to you the amount of shame and what it took and the courage it took for me to show up in a because what this means to my community, if I would admit these struggles. And so that was when I realized there's something here. And that's, I started my Instagram account to build a therapist directory. That was the purpose. And that was really what allowed me to realize, oh my gosh, this identity that I kept so hidden throughout my training was my superpower. This is therapy session for me because I'm like having you can't you can't see me, folks listening, but I'm having uh, moments of epiphany and, and mind blowing this because I I think but here's the thing this goes uh, very much in line with the assimilation thing that we talked about right we are taught to excel to be the best period without ever talking about the fact that like does best mean the same thing for everybody and does meritocracy truly exist in America right like and I think um, I, I have conversations with a lot of content friends who want to be the best at anything, right? And so if you if you want to be a business coach, if you want to be a leadership group, you know, expert, cool. But they want to be the best for everybody. And if they're Asian American, I, I have to subtly remind them and hopefully they get it sooner than later that I'm sorry, the really privileged white kids are not coming to you for business advice. They're not. They have other sources. They don't find you credible. They look down on you. Whether it is blatant racism or just something subconscious, people don't come to people who look like us. Not all people come to people who look like us for any sort of help, guidance, expertise. I caught that on very early in my career. I was lucky enough to do that. And so I am very loud on LinkedIn. The majority of my LinkedIn followers are younger Asian folks. And then the ally group. I do you know, workshops for whether it's personal branding or storytelling or APAM stuff. And the people who show up and then engage after are younger versions of ourselves. And the reason why I decided to pick up a microphone and do this was because I realized too that listening to Gary Vaynerchuk all day wasn't healthy for me <laughs> because we are taught that there is a singular path to success and if that doesn't work, you have to introspect and blame yourself. Well, that doesn't allow for the introspection of the systems and the cultures in which we exist. And so it is important 
And this is why we say, you know, it's not enough to say just simply representation matters, but it's a hell of a good first step. And, and to make sure that context is being weaved into everything, because especially in mental health, there is no so much of what we were told when we were uh, younger, particularly in our subconscious. And I as now as a dad, I have to check myself of like, dude, like I shouldn't say that because I resented my mom for saying all that stuff, whatever. Right. Like. And and if, if the people who are trying to help us don't understand that, right? And, and I think even uh, our audience, our show is called Dear Asian Americans, like all 23 million people, your agents for mental health, all 4 billion of us, like there's so much intercultural uh, nuance there that we miss, right? Like ideally speaking, you probably resonate a hell of a lot with Taiwanese American uh, millennial moms who have a professional job, right? Like let's get super specific. And that's why it's important that more of us get into all of these fields because I don't know what the hell it means to be a you, Jenny and vice versa. Right. But it's important that in this stage of, we can't boil the ocean all at once, um, to be able to even talk about it. Um, and so I, I speak for not just myself, but I know, literally hundreds of thousands of people who want to say thank you for taking the bold step and thank you to the racist professor who lit the fire under your butt to do this because uh you came at a time when we needed you the most and we didn't even know it right <laughs> when COVID happened when the initial surge of violence was rising when uh, we were blamed all of us for a virus that we had nothing to do with um, we flocked to the internet. We flocked to our phones, uh, mainly because we had nowhere else to go. Uh, but also, we broke down the walls of what we defined as traditional community, and we found community on the internet. Patrick's here on the recording with us. I met him through the internet, and now we are working together and in real life friends, right? And, and Jenny, you met so many people through Instagram and now written a book with somebody who uh, you know, um, you'll, you're meeting Charles for the first time in real life next week. No, I met him, uh, probably last fall. Yeah. Okay. But okay. So that's time. a little different, <laughs> but many people that you've done work with and have impact, right. Or have created impact in the world is with people that we met in this community that we created for ourselves. And, and so talking about the alignment of stars and circumstances, um, but, but tell us what, when did you first notice that your Instagram account was a thing? Was there a moment you're like, holy crap, like people, people will love this. People need this. Um, tell us about sort of from your perspective, how that grew and how that impacted you. I think it was probably around the time of George Floyd, actually. And um, I was honestly just processing out loud. I was like, it, it, it was heartbreaking. I didn't know what to do with it. Being Asian American, there's so much anti-Blackness in our community as it is. And it was like, I, how, what do I do with all of this kind of emotion? And, and I think around that time, it was helpful for me to process out loud because I think a lot of people felt similar things. I think a lot of people felt like, well, yeah, I knew racism existed for Black Americans, and 
yet perhaps I've never done anything or spoken about it or really thought about it critically. I never thought about my privilege in that kind of white, black spectrum of race. And I think people were trying to figure out, well, now what does that mean? We have watched this this individual and his life being taken in front of our eyes, and we can't just let it be. We can't just now stay the same. And I think I was in that same place where I was like, what is happening and what can we do? And I think that's when you also saw a lot of right Black Asian solidarity and all of these things started to happen. And I think people, you know, started sharing different posts. And I think actually when I woke up and I had all these like Instagram or texts and people said, Ava Chen shared your post. And she said to follow you. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what's happening here? And I think that was like when the account like really just kind of blew up in a way for the first time. But I think as much as, you know, it's it's neat and that's interesting, this account has never been about metrics or numbers or even being the best. I don't consider myself, I say this all the time, I'm not the best. I'm just the one who said it out loud. Right. And so I think it's important that we're doing this in community because guess what? I want to now pull up the next Asian American mental health author and I want to introduce them to Charles or whoever. And I want to tell them how you write a book and I want to help them as they negotiate that contract. That is what I'm setting myself up for next because I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be the best in standing by myself. I want to be up there representing my people and pulling as many people as I can up, right, with me or through the door. Um, so that's kind of where I am. Well, I think you're pretty badass. And I think uh, while um, I agree that metrics are not the goal, uh, they are an example or a story, a part of the story of how much impact you have, because you don't get to 80 plus thousand followers if your content sucks. <laughs> right. That's just the truth. Right. Um, and, and so it, it resonates. Right. It, it's a uh, it, it's a factor of the resonance. So and so, um, you know, you got a book coming out next week. Jenny, stop being so humble. Um, <laughs> buy Jenny's book, people. Um, permission to come home. Buy it. Share it. Gift it. Um, you know, you mentioned the vulnerable part. Right. And I think I think there is a uh, fascinating concept between somewhere between vulnerability and fear of being so public with the way we feel. Um, yes, trolls exist. Yes, idiots exist. Um, sometimes the biggest critics are the people that are closest to us, right? Like, how do you talk about interracial trauma without offending your mom and dad who gave everything for you? Because um, they don't understand the concept of both, of loving you and wishing things were different. How do you talk about, you know, um, kids, right? Like, I mean, I talk about my kids pretty openly and like at some point they might listen to all this and go, what the hell that? Like, I don't know. Um, and most importantly, in between our two, you know, two ears, like we self-doubt, we talk ourselves out of things, into things. The, the fear of the response, even though as much as we like to tell people, stop giving a crap about what anybody says, it's real. Um, from the outside, at least, you are superwoman. You're saying, screw that. I'm going to squash it and just let it out. Um, how do you do it? Because it seems easy from the outside. And, and what are some tips and thoughts that you can share with somebody who has so much to share and they know their stuff is going to be helpful 
but that fear of being vulnerable is holding them from pressing send today? I wish I had the answer, but I don't. But the only thing I can say, honestly, is what tangible, small next step can I take in the right direction? Right. And, and the thing is, as, okay, as I put, push send on the final manuscript and I okayed it, I was like, oh, crap. I just told all of my family stories. And like, what does this mean? Right. Because I still felt at the back of my head, that voice that said, dude, you're going to bring shame upon your family. You're telling stories that people don't tell in public. And what does that mean when you share that? How are people going to look at you now? Right. And I've tried my best through my Instagram account to be as honest as I can. When I fail, when I trip, when I stumble, I say that, you know, and even though that is terrifying every single time I do it, I feel like I have to do what I'm asking people to do. I'm asking people to talk about their mental health and their struggles. If I don't model that, what value, right? What, what dissonance is there? And so I think how is to realize you can be totally scared and do it anyway. And then two is that every time you are vulnerable, you have the opportunity to strip shame down. You're able to break it. Because when I'm vulnerable with you even right now, I know that I likely will be received with empathy and compassion not judgment and criticism that I fear so much. And so that vulnerability actually frees us from the shame. But we have to do it. And most of us, it's it's something totally new. We've never done that before because we've spent our whole lives trying to curate this image of perfection that's fed by the lies of model minority, fed by our competency and achievement addiction. And that's not going to save us. That's not going to help our mental health, right? And so when I show up with you and in this book fully, right, curtains drawn back, here's all the skeletons in the closet, I do it with the hope of saying, if I can do it, you can do it too. How much of that storytelling that you do um, about other people in your lives uh should you, because I think you're, you're not alone, and then I think uh, I'm so grateful that you brought it up, right? Because as, as I was joking about earlier, like our stories happen to be other people's stories because that's how stories work. Um, our parents don't decide for us in this moment. They can only react after it's been put out into the universe. How do you, and you know, you, you gave us some thought, but like, how do you, how do I deal with that? How do I you know, whether it is my kids or a friend who was involved. And, you know, I, I think with friends, we can anonymize and saying like, oh, my friend, but mom, you get one or two, uh, you know, both sides. If you're married, you got kids like these are identifiable characters in a book. Um, how, how do you balance uh, the need for um, the transparency with which a story is told versus obviously, you know, protection. And when, when we when we advocate for authenticity it's not so that we can shame our parents 
to say, why'd you do this? Because uh, then we're repeating the cycle. But how, how do you balance that? And, and what can folks learn from a, you know, a muscle memory perspective to get better at that? I think, you know, I share a lot of my mom's stories. And in order to do that, I had to ask her, are you comfortable with me sharing that story? With the inner, you know, interaction that you have with your mom? Or are you comfortable with me? And what are the bounds of that? Right? Mm. What is too much? What is enough? Right? And it was terrifying because my mom actually read my book in a day when it came out. She like just I mean, I was shocked and I gave her the advanced reader copy and like the next day she was like, I'm done with it. I'll bring it back. And I was like, what did you think? Right. And I asked her, I said, was it hard for you to read the stories? Because some of it had intergenerational trauma. Things. And she said, no, not at all. And she said, and I'm going to get emotional. She said, I'm so proud of you for writing and I think that that moment, it solidified to me that sometimes our parents are trapped as well. But they are also trapped behind the shame and the fear and all of the things that we struggle with as well, but they can't verbalize that. The language, concepts, those ideas aren't tangible for them. And so I write it in the book, in the chapter about grief, about how when I spoke about my grief, with my mother, who was in pain as well, we both healed in a certain way. And that is my part two of my hope of this book, is that number one, we look inside and can see our pain. The part two is, can we bring our healing that we experience to our parents? Because when I show up in a more regulated and compassionate and empathetic space, with my parents, they taste something that they have potentially never had in their entire life. And that's my hope. Yeah, I, you know, um, we can just look to our parents and our grandparents even uh, and, and go look at a history book of what happened back home when they were alive to understand what freaking privilege we even have to be like, yo, just talk about your feelings. They were literally trying to survive war, famine worse um and so you know we have to be you know I, I often say this to younger folks who are just so frustrated at their parents and you know it, it's so fun to shit on your parents online right um but i was like yo take like five minutes and actually think about the stuff that they went through to make sure that you are here today and if that doesn't make you cry and say sorry and have empathy at the very minimum that they're doing the best that they can um and i and i say the things to them that my mom always threatened me with just wait till you become a parent. <laughs> Everything will make sense. Because um, it's true. So you you true. flip, you know, the person, you know, the circumstance and it makes sense. Um, a couple more things I, I want to ask you. How do you take care of yourself? You have been a megaphone. Um, I know that you have taken breaks online and have publicly said, yo, I need a break. Don't bother me. Um, I need space. Um, you know, and, and that also comes from, again, a reflection of you're doing a pretty damn good job that people come to you. Um, and again, you have, uh, clients that you work with that we never hear about. This is a public one-way service. There's probably a lot of two-way dialogue that wants to have happened and people who desperately want help coming into your DMs. How do you draw your boundaries and, and how do you take care of mental health for yourself, Jenny? I'd say number one is my own therapy. 
you know, you can't tell people to go to therapy and then not do it yourself in many ways. And so I think my own therapy is crucial. I am a big believer that we have to move our bodies because we metabolize stress, we metabolize emotions through our bodies. And so um, I love to run. I run a couple times a week and that just helps me decompress and reset. Um, I draw boundaries as much as I can in terms of these are the boundaries that I, boundary restrictions that I think about. My time, my resources or capacity, and do I want to do it? So things have to pass through all three of those gates in order for me to say yes. And that is what I live by and I do it all the time. And that helps protect those spaces. You know, being a clinician, we're really, I mean, boundaries are so important. And so social media spaces and then clinical spaces and all these other spaces, they are pretty well compartmentalized for me. Um, but, you know, social media is this, you know, it's its a wonderful tool. And at the same time, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a vortex that you can get sucked into. And so having boundaries around those spaces as well, recognizing that you can't be all things to all people. And you have to accept that. And in fact, I don't want to be all things to all people because there are other people who could be things for you too, right? And so how do I, you know, direct people to other people doing amazing work? That's how I handle boundaries as well. When I say a no, that means I'm actually saying, what about this person? Can you reach out to them? They would be an awesome speaker for this thing as well. Um, so yeah, I would say those are the top areas. And then of course, connection, right? Am I spending time with my partner? Am I spending time with trusted friends who allow me to take off all the armor, right, that we all carry every day and just be. Those are my non-negotiables. The last topic before we, we close out, um, I want to talk to you about is the practical turning your ideas into a business in a sense, which happens when you write a book, which happens when you speak at uh, companies, organizations in exchange for compensation. Um, which happens, which can happen when you uh, grow a, a social following as big as yours and people want to engage with you uh, for financial benefit. Um, and then you mentioned earlier, your job now is to teach other people how to uh, write a book, how to market themselves. And uh, you and I have had offline discussions, frank ones, about our own respective speaking careers and where we want to go and how much we charge. Um, how do you balance that and the work that you're doing? Because I think not unique to Asian Americans, but a lot of uh, critics will say you are helping people. The intersection of that help, particularly in a community-based audience and monetization is a tough topic for some. I don't believe it because you need sustainability built into your business. And we never, just like you mentioned about your professor asking you something that they probably wouldn't ask a white dude. Nobody goes to white dudes and says, why are you monetizing your ideas? Nobody says that. We just give them money and buy their book again, right? But we have, that's again, that's a lot of self-imposed thoughts and things that maybe our parents planted there, community, religious organizations, what have you. Um, how have you uh, looked at or self-perceived or uh, as a businesswoman, now Jenny being you know a brand out there that people look to as you write the second book, the third book, as you go on a speaking tour, um, how do you, I, I don't know if there's a question there, but I think there's, you know, a, a thought of mine as well of wanting to balance helping people and feeling okay with it. And, and perhaps the question is, you know, had you struggled with that? Is that something that you think about? And for, again, I'm not the only one, I can't be the only one for people who are struggling out there of wanting to 
make helping people a part of our business model, how do you get okay with that? And uh, self-value in terms of compensation where it needs to be market rate, not what we are telling ourselves that we can take at a very minimum. Uh, would love your thoughts on you know a couple of those topics. I think coming from, you know, being a child of immigrants, there was always this, like, I'm just lucky to be here mentality, right? And I think even with my practice, like, I started with a rate that was not really market rate. It was a little bit lower because I was like, well, maybe then people will come, right? And and I, I don't regret doing that because in, in many ways, I feel like when you do, when you talk about things like what is your value of your time or how much you charge, there always is an evolution. You have to start somewhere, right? But I think over time, you realize that you cannot physically be everywhere at once and your time is more valuable, right? Every time I choose to do a talk or do something, I can't be with my kids, right? And every time I choose to do something else, I that's time that I don't have for myself. And it's valuable. It's the work that I do. I believe in so much that I want to do it. And I mean, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I probably would do it for free if I didn't have to worry about income, right? So in that sense, it you believe in the work and you do it well because of that. But then at the same time, you realize that if you don't fill that gap, somebody else will. And they'll do it probably at a higher rate than you would charge. And so I think it's stepwise. You build upon each step of getting to where you feel comfortable and you feel like, you know what, I think I, I am worth that. And you you figure out where you land in that spectrum. But I think also you never get what you don't ask for. Yeah. I learned that the really hard way, right? Like I was like, oh, when I first started, I was like, oh, I'll just be really nice and I'll ask for like an honorarium and I'm happy to do it. But now time is more limited and I have to ask for what financially makes sense. And, and the thing is, I've been in situations where companies have said, hey, um, we're only paying these guys this much, but you're asking for way more. Can you come down just a little bit and we'll still pay you more than these other guys? And I'm like, what? Like, this can't be happening, right? Where, and we were all people of color who are speaking on this panel. And I literally on principle was like, I'm sorry, I don't want any part of this. Like if you can't find a way to compensate us all fairly, you can find someone else. And that's literally what I did, you know? And so I think it's just, you find ways and you learn how to negotiate this, but you'll never learn unless you do it and you mess up and you struggle. And then I think what's really powerful, because you mentioned we've talked about this, is people have come to me now and said, hey, what do you charge? Do you mind me asking? Because I want to make sure that I'm not underpricing or overpricing. And I think that's the collaboration piece that our community can do well, is to say, oh, girl, you got to up your rates, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't work. Or to say, hey, I think this is reasonable. And to share in that knowledge together, that's how we all grow together. And I want folks listening who uh, who are new to this world. Um, we're operating as as being the first in our families to charge for our time. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have public speakers as parents. We didn't have coaches as parents because uh, immigrants don't do that, right? And so um, we're—I don't know—we um, are uh, doing amazing things for where we are relative to that. And 
Um, I, I, I need to remind folks, just because Jenny will do it for free doesn't mean that she will. And so <laughs> please not ever ask her to work for free. Uh, I don't want to work for free. Um, and, and so uh, we're, we're, we're talking just a few months before May, which is a uh, busy season for Asian American speakers. And um, man, if we had a penny for every time somebody asked us to do work for, for exposure, um, we could pay ourselves a fair wage. Um, <laughs> as, as we part, Jenny, and I'm so grateful for your time. Um, the tradition here on the show is to leave the audience with a letter, the Dear Asian Americans letter to impart any wisdom, thoughts, or inspiration, um, perhaps from things that have come to light as we were speaking, or just from your life in general. And so uh, please give us the honor of closing out the show uh, by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I am so proud of us. I am so excited for what we're building. I am just in awe of what we've created in these last couple of years, and I cannot wait to see what comes next. What's next is you buying Jenny's book. It's called Permission to Come Home. <laughs> you can buy it wherever books are sold. If you can buy it from an Asian American owned bookstore like you and me in New York City or Eastwind Books in Berkeley, California, Please do that because part of what we need to do is to keep the money within the community to take the money uh, out of the ecosystem and put it into each other's pockets so that we can continue to do the work that we do. And so, Jenny, you have an incredibly busy week. Uh, please take care of yourself. Rest. Enjoy your book tour. Um, I cannot say enough. Both congratulations. Thank you. I am happy for you. And we will rise together in sharing our stories. And good luck. Thank you so much, Jerry. It has been a blast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for uh, sticking around till the end. Hope you found this conversation as helpful as I did. Um, always such uh, a fun time talking to Jenny, but more importantly, it is uplifting. It is um, life-giving, and it gives me uh, inspiration and, and hope and motivation to continue to do the work that we do here. And so, um, again, big thanks to our friends over at Standing With Asian Americans, uh, Justin, Wendy, Diana, Brian, and the rest of the team uh, for your support of our podcast through this 10-part series, which will air every Tuesday. Uh, this is number two, and so join us for the next eight Tuesdays. And if you haven't heard our kickoff event or kickoff podcast, rather, episode with Justin Zhu, who is the executive director and co-founder of Staying with Asian Americans, please do so. We have so many exciting and amazing guests for you for the rest of the month uh, this week. If you are joining us, uh, you're also going to be hearing from uh, the one and only um, Julia Ryu, who you may have uh, gotten to know over TikTok or Instagram over the last few months. Um, she's a Harvard student, uh, perhaps a Harvard grad by the time you listen to this, who has uh, taken uh, TikTok by storm, certainly, but who will be soon taking Broadway by storm. And so thanks again so much for tuning in. Uh, at Asians for Mental Health is where you can find Jenny on Instagram. Uh, we'll put all of the other ways that you can find her, including ways for you to engage with her uh, on social, but also to bring her as a speaker for your company, school, or organization. You can always find us at theyearsamericans.com. You can find me at jerrywan.com. You can find me also on Instagram at jerryjwan. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Just search jerrywan, and we will uh, look forward to, or I look forward to engaging with you. Um, as May continues, as APAM continues, we wish you continued health, safety, and happiness. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your lives today. Wishing you all the good things and all the blessings that May has to bring and beyond. I've been your host, Jerry Wan. 
Thank you so much for tuning into Dear Asian Americans.